It feels great to be back. Oh, man. I missed y'all. I hope, I, I really do. I hope that every single one of y'all had an awesome holiday season. I hope you enjoyed your Christmas. I hope you enjoyed your New Year's. If you don't celebrate any of those, I still hope that you had a great time. If y'all was wondering about my holiday season, my Christmas, and my New Year's, man, it was fire, okay? It was so good. There was only, there was only one thing that really dampened my spirits. I'm not gonna lie to y'all. Um, and look, if any of y'all are looking to move, whether you're in the United States and you want to change states, or if you're in another part of the world and you want to come to the United States, let me just give you a warning because I care about you and I want what's best for you. Um, don't move to Oklahoma. Okay. If, if you want to wake up every morning, not knowing if you're going to need shorts or a polar ice jacket. Um, that Oklahoma is not the place for you. <laughs> Our weather makes absolutely no sense. And to tie this all back in onto why I had a damper on my spirits for Christmas and New Year's is because I'm someone that enjoys your stereotypical postcard Christmas. I want to see snow on the trees. I want to see it falling down on Christmas Day. I want to hear the jingles of Rudolph prancing across my roof. That's what I love about Christmas. I, I love it to actually feel like Christmas time. Cold weather, snow, hot cocoa. That's what I like. And Christmas was supposed to be a winter wonderland this year. The, the, the fall season started off, it was chilly, and I thought, oh, dude. It's about to go down on Christmas Day. And I woke up. And for some reason, Christmas just decided to be 70 degrees and sunny. Uh, I, had to, I had to wear shorts on Christmas. Like, what are we doing here? And then a week later, okay, not too far removed. A week later, on New Year's Day, it was 20 degrees and it was snowing. It, it just makes no sense. Oklahoma weather makes absolutely no sense. So... If y'all want to move to Oklahoma, let me just tell you from the deepest, most caring part of my being, just don't do it. Save yourself the pain and agony that I had to go through. But hey, nevertheless, can't y'all tell that I, I missed y'all? I'm so glad that we're back. Look, we are hopping right back in to Romans 14. There's only two chapters left. We've gotten through most of Romans. This has been a journey. And I hope that y'all have enjoyed going through Romans with me. I'm really excited to finish Romans because we're going to be hopping into Genesis and talking about creation and how ancient Israel viewed the, the cosmos and what, what Genesis is all about. And is it a scientific handbook? Did they believe different things about the universe than what we know it to be now? What was God trying to to tell us about in Genesis. And I'm really excited to get through that. But we we left off in verse 10 in Romans 14. We got some unfinished business because we left off in verse 10 because Paul was quoting something from the Old Testament to make a point of his. And the, the little verse that he quotes really does deserve some more attention than what we were able to give it in the last episode. So today we're going to get through five verses, going through Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 15. As always, we're going to read through it. If you have your Bible, your Bible app, if you're online, pull this up so you can follow along with me. 
Uh, we're going to read through this, and then we're going to break it down verse by verse like we always do. So verse 10, Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. All right, let's hop straight into this. Starting in verse 10, once again, Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? This is what Paul is dealing with. If if y'all are just hopping into this episode and you haven't gone through the the first few that we've done on this chapter, uh, Paul's dealing with some opinion differences within the Roman church. You have some people who think that they can eat whatever they want. And then others, most likely commonly known as the Jews, uh, they held to a very strict diet and believed that certain foods were unclean and unholy. Some of them viewed uh, certain days as holy and sanctified. Um, If we're talking about the Jews and we're looking at stuff like Passover and and all these various feasts, while other people just viewed every day as normal days, and this was causing tension within the Roman church because... For, for those who believed that certain things were unclean or certain things were holy, they viewed that as a salvation issue. They viewed that as an issue of being in right standing with God. And so Paul's having to address this. And so he asked the question, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise them? He continues, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For clearly it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, what Paul quotes is found in Isaiah. But what's interesting is he reads it as one whole quote. The way it's written is as if Paul just found this verse in Isaiah, plucked it out, copy and paste onto his scroll, and sent it off. But what's interesting about this one single verse that Paul quotes is it's actually two different verses found in Isaiah in different chapters. And the way that Paul crafts this quotation is interesting. One thing you'll notice when reading the New Testament is that the authors oftentimes will pull various verses from the Old Testament, normally They'll quote from the prophets, and they mend them together to make one quote. If you read through any of the epistles, any of Paul's letters, any of the letters that Peter wrote, that John wrote, when they quote the Old Testament, if you go through and look at the exact quotes, oftentimes what you'll see is that there's some additional words, or there's words missing, or the words that are being quoted aren't actually the same word. They'll kind of change them around, and and you start scratching your head going, am I reading the same Bible (laughs) as these people? And often what they did is they would mend together various verses. It could be in different chapters, uh, sometimes in, in completely different books of the Bible. And this may 
this may make us feel uneasy, but it may lighten your spirits to know that even Jesus did this. We see this in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. Jesus is reading from one of the scrolls in the synagogue, and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And this is what Jesus says. He's reading it straight from the scroll is, is how it's presented. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now, how it's presented to us and how Jesus presents it, he presents it as just one complete reading, as if he just looked at one chapter in Isaiah, just read exactly word for word what was there, and presented it to the people in the synagogue. But what's interesting is that what Jesus says and what he quotes, it actually comes from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2, the Septuagint version. And then another part of it comes from Isaiah 58, verse 6. So Jesus is mending together two completely different verses in different places from the prophet Isaiah, and he makes it as if it's one coherent verse that was written by the original author that way. Another thing, too, if you go through and look at what Jesus quotes in Luke 4, and you go back to the originals in Isaiah 61 and in Isaiah 58, you'll notice that Jesus makes a few edits. He, he makes at least three edits to the scriptures. He omits certain words, he changes certain words, and he does this to prove his theological point of him being the Messiah that everyone's been waiting for. And this may seem weird to us. And the first time that I, I noticed this, it it honestly made me kind of doubt a little bit because I'm like, man, if they can just completely mangle whatever, you know, the prophets are saying and, and changing scripture, you know, then what does that mean for us? But this will give us some comfort knowing that this was actually a common practice in terms of reading in the synagogue. It was also allowed by the Jewish Mishnah, and the Jewish Mishnah is just the, the Jewish law traditions that were around at that time. In one of those law traditions, it's called the Mishnah Moed 4.4, if you wanted to look it up, um, it talks about that if someone was reading from the book of the prophets, they were allowed to leave out verses in the prophets. Interesting. They were allowed to make edits. Kenneth Bailey says this. He says, How much could the reader skip, you might ask? Well, the Mishnah stipulates that the reader could omit only so much that he leaves no time for the interpreter to make a pause. So whenever people, especially Jesus, would be reading in the temple, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Although the New Testament's written in Greek, Jesus spoke Aramaic. A lot of the listeners in that synagogue most likely would have spoken Greek as well since they were in the province of Rome. And so there'd be an interpreter there, a translator. And so it was not just common practice, but it was also allowed in the Jewish law at that time that when you're reading from the prophets, so you, you couldn't really do this with other parts, but from the prophets, you could skip lines. You, you could just skip them. And Jesus goes an extra step since he is the word and he changes a few of the words. He makes some edits in what Isaiah says to really highlight the point of what Isaiah was really getting at, that he's the Messiah. Now, much more could be said on this, but for those 
who see New Testament authors quoting the Old Testament and wonder why there's small changes from time to time? Now you know. It's because it was a Jewish Jewish custom to cut and paste insofar as it doesn't alter the meaning of the text. So what we see Paul doing here in this quote, and I'm going to read it again. He says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Paul pulls from two sources. He pulls from Isaiah 49, verse 18, and Isaiah 45, verse 23, and he mends them together to make them one word. Now, when Paul's doing this, he's doing this from the Septuagint. And you'll notice this. If you go look at what Paul says and you compare it to what uh, it says in the Old Testament, the wording's a little bit different because the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, the reason why this is interesting and reason why it's helpful for modern readers like you and I is because the original Hebrew in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, that Paul's quoting from, it doesn't say that every tongue will confess to God. What it says is that every tongue shall swear allegiance to God. And reason why the Septuagint is helpful here is because the Septuagint translator, someone who lived way, way long ago in ancient times, they're really close to the Hebrew text. They have a deep understanding of um, how it's meant to be understood. They give us some more insight into what is meant by swearing allegiance. And so they render that word to read, confess to God, to help us get a better understanding of what Isaiah is saying. So because every single one of us not only will swear allegiance, but also confess ourselves to God, because Paul uses this as his quote, Paul wants us to look back on his original question, knowing that we're going to be confessing to God. He, he wants us to look back and say, why then are we passing judgment on our brother? Why are we despising our brothers and sisters in Christ? Why are we judging them? Why are we going after them because of differences in opinion if I myself am going to have to confess to God? On to verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. You know, this is very profound in word, but also profound in action. I mean, imagine how radical this idea that Paul lays forth would be if we actually acted it out. If every person acted this out, if every person would not pass judgment on one another. Now, Paul's speaking in a Christian context. I think that's important to note too. Paul's not just talking about um, if you're a believer and you have a non-believer who's doing very sinful things that you cannot pass judgment and you cannot call that out or you can't say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Paul's talking about in the confines of the body of Christ. And he's talking about it in the confines of opinion as well, not things that are clearly stated in the Word of God as sin. So we got that foundation. But imagine how this would look if in the body of Christ, Instead of judging each other over these matters of opinions, we each decided that we were not going to do anything that would cause someone else to stumble or would get in the way of their walk with Christ or their salvation. Imagine what that would look like. Because we all know it's human nature to be selfish. 
it's human nature to desire your own self-preservation and your own comfort at whatever the cost. If you put two random people in a barren desert, place them on an island with no hope for food, no hope for water, it's human nature that at some point they will get so desperate enough where they will abandon their morals and their ethics and they will fight each other in order to obtain their best possible outcome. That's human nature. And although we are civilized, and although we are under Christ, our human nature isn't taken away. We, we still desire to have the best for ourselves, whether it be finances, comfort, material items, shelter, food, etc. So typically, whenever two forces with equal power butt heads, they can find themselves at an impasse. And oftentimes, you see this in the world superpowers as well, the way that they carry on is by having something called mutually assured destruction. The idea that if you try and destroy me, you may destroy me, but you better believe I will destroy you as well. And because of those actions, we will both be finished. We'll both be destroyed, and obviously nobody wants that. And so this this idea, this observation of human nature, this applies to Paul's messaging because Paul points out that everybody will face God. Everyone will face judgment. You can't escape it. And knowing this truth as believers in Christ, this should cause us to abstain from attacking and judging our brothers and sisters in Christ. Knowing this truth is just one of the many rungs on our ladder that that should cause us to abstain from our natural inclination to try and get rid of anything that poses as a threat. So what Paul ultimately calls us to do when we're at an impasse and what Christ calls us to do no matter what is to pursue mutually assured submission. Because mutually assured submission causes both parties to put the other party's interest in well-being first and above and beyond their own. This is why Paul says, never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In this sentiment of upholding others in spite of your own natural desires, your own natural needs or selfish ambitions, this is the core to the gospel. This is core to Paul's message. We talked about this a few episodes ago, but he points this out in in chapter 10, in verse 12, when he calls them to outdo one another in showing honor. That is a big statement in a culture where honor is hard to come by. He's calling every single person in the body of Christ to not try and get honor, but to actively give honor. Submission. So when it comes to this difference of opinion in food and holy days and any other matter, Paul doesn't just call them or us to be understanding, but he calls them to submit to each other. And if this is put into action, imagine what the results would be. Imagine what the results would be. They'd be amazing. On to verse 14, Paul says, I know 
And I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Now, this is very interesting. And this will open a can of worms that unfortunately we can't uh, put back until a few more episodes, but I'm just going to leave this here because it is important to what Paul's saying. But notice the language that Paul uses of unclean. Yeah, the language of clean, unclean. Uh, These are terms commonly used by the Jews in regards to things that are prohibited in the Torah. And it seems like Paul is turning his attention in this particular verse to the Jewish audience to point out that uh, nothing, whether it be food, drinks, animals, whatever, nothing in and of itself is unclean or unholy. It's made by God. Everything is made by God. So nothing left to its own devices is bad or unholy. So you're okay to partake of these things. However, if your conscience is convinced that it's unclean and wrong to partake of it, even if it's really not, then for you, it is still unclean and it is still wrong to do. And you may ask the question, but but does that make it unclean for everyone else then? And what Paul would say is, no. And this is the can of worms that will be open (laughs) and will resolve in a few episodes, but there are things that are a sin for some and not a sin for others. Isn't that wild? It's weird for us, especially in our culture, where everyone is supposed to be equal. Everyone's supposed to have equality when it comes to the laws, when it comes to the application of the laws, when it comes to the punishment of the laws. And so naturally we would think that uh, a sin should be a sin for everybody. It's not fair if a sin is a sin for one person and not a sin for another person. But when it comes to these matters of opinion, when it comes to sin in these instances, there are things that are wrong and sinful for some people to do that for others would be just fine. And we'll unpack a little bit more of that in this episode, but we'll really get into it here in a few episodes. On to verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, this is a bold statement. This is a bold statement. The statement that if your actions even if on their own are okay, if they still cause someone else pain or discomfort, then it's your fault. You're the one not walking in love. Now, how can this be? One example I could give to you would be the example of drinking alcohol. Because alcohol in and of itself is not sinful. The Bible only prohibits drunkenness, but many times in the Bible... Wine is is drank, and it's a good thing, and it brings community together, brings joy. Um, so the the drink in and of itself is not bad. It's the drunkenness. It's the lack of control when it comes to the substance that causes it to be a sin. But alcoholic beverages alone, it they're they're fine. They're not a sin. However, if you have a friend who is a recovering alcoholic and you decide that it's a good idea to drink in front of them or even offer them a drink, 
Even if in a normal situation, having a drink in front of, you, in front of a friend or offering a friend a drink would be wrong, in this situation, it is wrong. That would be that be a sin because you're not walking in love. You know that they have a problem, and you're not being mindful of what they deem as unclean. The action on its own is not sinful, but when they cause someone else to be tempted and potentially fall into sin, then Paul's saying, "Hey, we got a problem." And you may ask, "Well, why does it even matter? Like, it's not my fault that they have." A problem. It's not my fault that, that they think that this thing is unclean or that it bothers them. So why should I have to give up my joy and things I like to do because it may bother somebody else? That is something that's very prevalent in our culture today where many people don't care if what they say or do affects anybody else in a negative way. As long as it's something that they like doing, they, they tell everyone else to buzz off and to leave them alone. And Paul's answer to this type of attitude, this type of sentiment would be, uh, hey, life isn't about you. Life is about living for Jesus Christ. It's about being a servant to your creator. That, that's what life is about. It's about fellowship with your creator and with his creation. And if your little drink or meal or opinion or actions, if you think that that takes precedence over someone's salvation or well-being, then Paul is trying to tell us that we have our priorities misplaced. This goes for all matters of opinion. This is why Paul says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Because that's the important thing here. It, uh, it 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 doesn't matter if you're not able to to eat that burger that you like cuz it's not about you and in what you want in in this bigger picture it's about not destroying the very person that Christ died for it's bigger than it's bigger than us there's a bigger picture Jesus didn't die just for you he died for everyone, and he died so that you can serve him, because ultimately that's the greatest joy that any of us could ever experience.